Good day and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Professor Nile Green of the University of California, Los Angeles, will talk to us about his book, Bombay Islam, The Religious Economy of the West Indian Ocean, 1840-1915. A leading authority on Islam in South Asia and the wider Persianate world generally, Nile has just returned from a trip to Afghanistan. Basically, the guy is an old India hand, and therefore the perfect person to talk us through the pluralisms of Islam in maritime Bombay and its hinterlands. Plus, we get to decide whether or not it is supremely ironic that Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the man who attempted to bring together all the Islams of South Asia under one nation-state, for a long time lived and worked amidst this almost bewildering diversity of belief, faith, and religion. Over to Nile. Good morning, Nile. Good morning, Garrett. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, um, and thanks for doing this for the New Book Network. Um, it's very exciting for us. Um, uh, could you just start off by telling our readers something about your career to date, your research interests, you know, and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Well, at the moment, I'm a professor of uh, South Asian and Islamic history at, at UCLA. And before I taught there, I taught at the University of Manchester and before that at Oxford University in Brooklyn, where I was a Milburn Research Fellow. My interest had really developed much earlier when I was a teenager, pretty much, and I started traveling in, in the Middle East. When I was 17, I got on a train to, to Istanbul, kind of more Midnight Express than Orient Express, but nonetheless, it really started even at that early age to develop my interest in Islamic and Islamic societies. And um, you know, from that age onwards, in my late teens, I traveled in, in, in Egypt when I was still a teenager and uh, always traveling alone on my own and you know, meeting people and, and exploring places. And I traveled to India, Pakistan and Iran and various other places. So when I was a, uh, did my uh, master's degree, I studied Persian for that. And that sort of started to open me up to the study of Persian societies in particular. And I spent a lot of time in Iran in my 20s as well. So really, in many ways, my, my research interests, even though I'm a historian, I very much developed my interests working on the ground, really. And there was a point, really, in my, in my 20s, I wasn't sure if I'd become an anthropologist or a historian. I was more interested in the past, always, but I was always very interested in trying to see the, uh, how, how societies remember the past, how they work with the past, how they work with it ritually, how they work with it with memory, how they remember it, how they construct the past or preserve the past architecturally. So, so in many ways, even though I work as a historian, those years of travels were really very informative to me in, in the way I work as a kind of, um, I'm a historic ethnographer sometimes, really. And I continue to travel really quite a lot. Um, um, I was recently in, in Afghanistan, which we'll talk about perhaps a bit later. And every every year, usually, I try to go somewhere, whether back to India or Pakistan or, or somewhere different. And, of course, the, the travel travels for Bombay Islam were very much part of that kind of ethos that I learned to develop from, um, from my teenage years and from in my 20s. So Bombay Islam very much developed out actually as a project, out of travels in various places before the, the penny finally dropped to me, that so many of the places I'd visited in Iran, in Hyderabad, in India, in, in South Africa, in Durban, that the, the, the key connecting place all of these was Bombay. But that ethos in my work really um, continues to, to you know, inform how I, how I write books as a historian even today. 
Also, could you tell us something about the rest of your publications, you know, the research that actually led up to Bombay Islam? Yeah, my, my first book, uh, of course, based on the PhD, was called Indian Sufism Since the 17th Century, Saints, Books and Empires in the Muslim Deccan. That came out in 2006. And that was a study of Aurangabad. Um, it's, it's a small town of a mere approximately million inhabitants in Maharashtra, which was briefly through the um, latter part of the 17th century, the capital of the Mughal Empire in its last great phase of expansion into the south. And... Um, Shortly after the, the Mughals withdrew from, from the Deccan, from, from Aurangabad, Aurangabad itself became the, the first capital of the Nizam, of, subsequently of Hyderabad. But it was the first capital then of, of a successor state that became Hyderabad state. And this was a city on which no one had, had worked in any degree at all. It struck me as a sort of a bit of a gold mine, really, particularly for a PhD student and then for a first book. Insofar as he was a, a late Mughal capital, a successor state, and much more a part of India that even through till the mid 20th century remained part of princely India, was never formally part of British India, remained part of Hyderabad state. So that first book was in fact around, uh, based around how a series of, of Sufi migrants from Central Asia, from North India, from Iran, moved to Aurangabad. Um, under the Mughals and under different Mughal patrons, largely different patrons of the same ethnic groups of these saintly clients, um, how this connection between saintly migrants and, and, and elite imperial patrons created a series of, of shrines and created also a, a literature based around these shrines that in a sense created a, a sacred geography in this late imperial moment that continued to survive right down through the Nizam's period into the period of independence, of course, right down to the present day. So in the book, this, was the, this is the, sort of the element of the title, Since the 17th Century, I, tr I try to trace the continuities and ruptures, you know, the kind of classic sort of formulation, in, in, in seeing how this imperial moment lingered on, in ritual terms, in hagiographical terms, um, and in terms of actually the, the memory of the Muslim inhabitants of the city. So as much as it's about Sufis, is the book really the... The subject matter is Sufis, but the actual theme is memory, cultural memory, and of these shrines as being places of, of cultural memory for the Muslims who, particularly the Muslim community, formed in that imperial moment in the 17th century. And that's, uh, I think, very interesting because a lot of the work that has been done on this, when you talk about Islam or when you talk about networks, you know, in like South Asia, especially Mughal South Asia, the focus always tends to be, you know, the Indo-Gangetic claim. That's right, that's right, absolutely. I mean, this is, again, I mean, you know, the fact that I chose Aurangabad and, and, and the Deccan more generally also came out of actually a, a trip during my mid-twenties and I went to India and, and just happened upon um, the town of Khuldabad, about which, of course, Carl Ernst had written a wonderful book. And I spent about a week there during the Urs, and this was really my introduction to the Deccan, and I actually realized, well, yeah, you know, as I actually went on to follow up the literature, that the Deccan is much more poorly served despite a handful of very good books, but of course you're absolutely right, compared to, to, to northern India, it's, it's much uh, much less uh, covered, and there's much more to discover there, really, um, historically and otherwise. So I stayed in that region for my second book, albeit I made quite a, a change of a style and uh, topic in, in other ways. This was the book, um, Islam and the Army in Colonial India, Sepoy Religion and the Service, Sepoy Religion in the Service of Empire, which came out with Cambridge in in 2009, I think. 
And, and this was a book really in a sense, a, 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 a subaltern studies type of book. I tried to trace the, the history of the, um, the, the Sipais, the, the Sepoys serving in the Hyderabad contingent under British command, and tried to trace the cultural and the religious life of these soldiers. In a sense, trying to trace the, the cultural life through the religious life, insofar as it's actually religious documentation. And again, these, these shrines are places that quite practically for historians really preserve the past in terms of documentation, as well as in terms of, of the ritual practices that are, in a sense, fossilized, like all forms of ceremonial practice. But it was at these shrines that I managed to locate a series of, of, of lithographic texts, manuscript texts, as well as oral traditions, which told the stories of certain fakirs, certain very um, non-conformist, ganja, cannabis-smoking, opium-smoking, um, lower-class holy men who were closely linked to the soldiers. In fact, one of the key figures I look at in the book was himself a former sepoy, a former sepahi, who, who seems to have gone insane. And that insanity was interpreted in different ways by the colonial institutions who put him in the, the, the Pagal Khana, the, the colonial asylum, and through his devotees and among the rank and file of the Indian soldiers, who saw him as a, a madzu, as a God-intoxicated holy man. So that second book was an attempt to really trace the, the, this metaphor I developed from the Persian expression, the Siai Lashkar, the, the blackness of the army, that's to say the, the unknown lower ranks of the colonial army. So it was an attempt to, to trace those figures in a kind of subaltern fashion, but I think in a way going beyond what the subalterns did, insofar as I think due to it, it, its kind of Marxist origins, subaltern studies never had an interest in religion. And that seemed to me really the, the kind of key flaw in the project, because it's actually through religion in some sense or form, custom, I, I guess, is another way of talking about it, but religious institutions that have actually kind of preserved in, in, in writ, the kind of written documentation that historians can work with, the lives of as it were, the, you know, the ordinary people, and in my case, in this book, quite literally, the subalterns of the colonial army. So, in a sense, it was a, you know, kind of an homage and a continuation to subaltern studies, but on the other hand, it was trying to do something that, that I think the subalterns, in many ways, were never able to do, in terms of really actually tracking the, the paper trail of, um, you know, of these people, the, the genuine subalterns of the colonial army. So would you say that was the fact that a lot of paper trails, you know, actually conversed in the city of Bombay that led you to research Bombay's land? That's right. I mean, I originally started working out on, on the, uh, the third book on, on Hyderabad itself, continuing my, my book Deccan trilogy almost. Um, but I'd also developed through these years interest in the Indian Ocean, and I'd, I'd worked a lot in Iran before as well and worked on various... Um, Iranian figures, Iranian religious figures from the 19th century, their travelogues and so on. Um, and I'd also spent some time in, in, in South Africa working on, on a number of uh, religious figures, holy men, saints, preachers associated with the Indian indentured laborers who, who moved to Natal colony, moved to South Africa in the course of the 19th century. Um, and I was also um, working on, on Hyderabad as well, and a whole number of people in 19th century Hyderabad. Um, and it was actually, through, as time went by, these separate projects, I I'd actually, the, the penny farthing took some time to drop until I realized that everyone was actually at some point converging on, 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 on Bombay. And in fact, many of the Hyderabadis I looked at, it was actually more difficult to write about them as Hyderabadis because they'd actually left Hyderabad and had settled in, in Bombay. 
Um, and this was similar with South Africa. The, 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 the South Africans weren't so much moving to Bombay, but were moving from Bombay to, to settle in South Africa, particularly the merchant classes and the religious figures I was interested in. And similar with Iran, too, that um, one of the earliest texts I, I, I looked at uh, for, the, for the Bombay Islam book probably around eight years ago now was a, a Persian travelogue of a, a very major, probably the most important Iranian Sufi of the 19th century, who left a travelogue of his, uh, of his journey to Bombay and, and, and through Bombay presidency. So eventually, again, you, know, you, you can see you know, how this came out of you know, a series of travels as well and, and picking up documents in sort of odd archives, family collections, shrine libraries. I mean, in many cases, of course, I do my work in the British Library and the Solajan Library and the, you know, the usual places. But really, I think what I've always tried to, to give a kind of a certain archival edge to my work by always working with private collections, family collections, or as I say, these shrine libraries to locate materials that you know, are often literally unique. You need copies of these works. Um, and of course, that requires you know, time on the road and of course, time spending time with people, you know, to persuade them to, to part with what are very often their, their family documentation, you know, works belonging to their family history. And, of course, some peculiar Englishman turns up and says, I'd like to look at this stuff. And, and, and that doesn't always, um, you know, come straight away. One needs to spend time making relationships. So, so that happened with, with Bombay Islam. And actually the book, even though it appeared probably only, what, about uh, two or three years after the Islam and the Army book, really in many ways was probably, you know, a good decade in the making in terms of you know, the location of these materials. And really the eventual development, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the development of a conceptual model that could actually cope with the, the geographical range as well as, um, I guess, the kind of the social and, and ethnic range of, of the data that I collected. So you clearly done a lot of fieldwork in Bombay as well. So could you tell us something more about it, like you know the actual fieldwork and talking to the collectors and looking at the Maharashtra State Archives, for instance? How was the experience? Well, I've always liked Bombay. I mean, in, in many ways, um, when I was doing my PhD, and I lived for about, about 18 months in, in Aurangabad, which, if you know, at least is around uh, what six or seven hours uh, train ride from, from Bombay. So Bombay was my place where I go for occasional R&R and escape for the occasional weekend when I was um, doing the PhD work. So I've been familiar with, with, with the city for a number of years and certainly with with some of the shrines of the city, you know, Haji Ali, of course, which everyone who visits Bombay knows about. Um, so there was a certain kind of familiarity with, with Bombay and awareness of, of, of the libraries as well as um, key kind of pilgrimage sites and, and historical sites before I actually turned my main attention to Bombay. Um, when I did return to Bombay to kind of formally work there for the Bombay Islam book, um, the most interesting time I had was, was in fact among the shrines of the dockyards. And that was really, really quite fascinating. Um, the, the other really interesting part of the research was actually in South Africa, but at least in terms of, of, of Bombay, the, the, the dockyard shrines, which were associated really in the 19th century, developed around the, the sailors in particular, the sailors on the steamships, the sailors who were often... East Africans, Habshis, as they're called in Persian, Abyssinians, but really from all over the, the, the British East Africa, who did the, the, the dirtiest and the hardest work in the steamships, working in the engine room, working with the coal and the fire. And these shrines were, were largely associated with, with those figures. In many cases, they were shrines of African um, uh, Sidi saints, so saints of African origin, even if some of the shrines were actually... Um, 
what I call franchise shrines, shrines established from the original shrine being up in Gujarat, but where the new kind of franchise of the shrine is established in the dockyards in Bombay. And then what really amazed me there was that, well, I suppose it didn't amaze me at an intellectual level. It was in some ways perhaps to be expected, but, but it was just so fascinating to see that the possession cults, the musical cults, this really kind of lower class religiosity with many Hindu women, as well as now many, of course, of the, the Habshis, the African sailors have gone now and been replaced by, by lower class women from the, from the slums around the, the docks itself. These kind of trance rituals and then possession rituals were still going on. And, of course, the atmosphere there, of course, these are some of the poorest bits of Bombay, and they're right by the water's edge with kind of decaying oil tankers or ships there. It was, for want of a better word, it was absolutely creepy. You know, on the one hand, it's got, you know, industrial decline and so on, these, you know, fucking iron ships. On the other hand, possession and expulsion of spirits and so on. And it was immensely creepy, but all the more, you know, fascinating and intriguing for that. I mean, of course, that's exactly the kind of stuff I love to turn up really to kind of, Try to theorise and think what this means. So these kind of places were were actually much more valuable. They're much more evocative for me. They they really allowed me to to you know read those accounts from the 19th century in in, in new vein. You know, kind of the I think the imagination and the informed imagination is a real crucial asset for a historian. So they're immensely important for, for all all that as well as just being purely purely fascinating. What was actually less useful in Bombay, and this was really um, uh, an eye-opener for me, were actually many of the archives of actually the city itself. Of course, the Bombay has many um, important manuscript libraries, particularly Persian-Arabic um, manuscript libraries founded in, in the 19th century, quite a series of them, whether the Asiatic Society or, or numerous others founded by uh, Parsi uh, uh, philanthropists. But, but in those collections, there's actually very little on the history of Bombay and very little, in fact, on the 19th century altogether. Clearly, the, the um, incentive in the founding and, and of these collections was to collect what was seen as classical works, very much in a sense like what British imperial collectors were doing at the same time as well. So there are often many important medieval or early modern texts, but despite being in the heart of Bombay, very, very little on Bombay itself. I found some materials in the Bombay um, University Library, um, and, and, and some in the Asiatic Society too, but we're really talking, you know, kind of one or two or three texts in each of those. So, in a sense, that's why it was, it, it was really crucial that, that the, the travels I did for, for the book um, took me to places like Hyderabad, to Tehran, to South Africa, and, and also, even though it's not directly in the book, just the Southeast Asia as well, by way of comparison with the East Indian Ocean, and thinking about Singapore in relation to Bombay and, and in relation to indentured labourers in, in, in um, what was in Malaya, and, and, and of course as well as collections in, 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 the, in the UK, and actually an important, very important library collection in, in Bavaria, in, in Munich as well, where I found actually the, the key text of of Bombay Islam, the earliest text of Bombay Islam, Johnny Bombay, the only text I've ever found anywhere of this book was in Munich, of all places. So, um, in many ways, although Bombay was really crucial to work there, one can hardly write a book about Bombay without going there. I actually, I think in many ways, if I were just a sort of a, a traditional archival historian or historian who just worked with my written materials, I could have probably written 80% of the book without actually being in Bombay itself, insofar as you know, so many of those materials came from these other places. And I think that actually kind of tells us about, I think, something about the, 
the, the history of Bombay in its own right. I mean, like many industrial towns, industrialized cities that sprung um, kind of sprung out of nowhere very quickly in the 19th century, um, they're actually kind of a whole series of decades before anyone started to think, oh, let's actually collect something about our, our municipal history. And by the time that moment starts to come, whether it's in Bombay or probably places like my own home city of Birmingham, by the time that moment comes, so much of the material has already been scattered or gone or was never commissioned to begin with. So I think for historians writing about Bombay in the 20th century, sure, that's a much more uh, straightforward task. But I think writing about its earlier history, particularly using vernacular materials, um, you know, one has to look far and wide. And Bombay's own library collections, at least in my own experiences, were, you know, weren't, weren't nearly as rich a treasure trove as the odd other places I went to around, around the Indian Ocean and around Europe. Uh, you use the term religious economy or religious marketplace quite a lot throughout the book. So could you elaborate what that means in terms of Bombay during the time frame of your book? Yeah, that's right. But part of the, 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 the problem as I saw it of, of writing a book with so many different participants that the Muslims of Bombay, as you know, I, I quote in the book various Bombay Muslims themselves saying, there is no Muslim community in Bombay. There are various Muslim communities in the city. And of course, Bombay was full of, uh, this is the, the whole point of, of why Bombay becomes so important to global and particularly Indian Ocean Muslims in the 19th century. The people flocked there from, from Iran, from Central Asia, from Afghanistan, from all parts of India, from Southeast Asia, from East Africa, the connections with Southern Africa, from the Arabian Peninsula. So it really has, um, not a melting pot by any means. These, these Muslims very much keep their own distinct ethnic identities. Um, and, and it, Bombay is never really a, an important place for pan-Islamism, I think, nor even necessarily for Muslim nationalism. So there's a real sense of these distinct Muslim identities there. So this creates then the fact that there are many, many different types of Islam, many different Muslim players and producers uh, um, um, in this city. And, and this created, of course, a whole scale of often quite disparate data that I was dealing with. Documents relating to Iranian immigrant Muslims, to Hyderabad Muslims, to South Africa, to, to uh, Muslims from, from within India, from Gujarat, or from outside India, from, from uh, the Hadramaut in Arabia. Um, and of course, it's also over a fairly long time period, of sort of 70 years, 70, 80 years I was looking at. And ultimately, I'm taking in a really kind of large space that even though the title evokes, at least the, the main title evokes Bombay, the subtitle evokes the Indian Ocean. And it's really a book, of course, about Bombay in the Indian Ocean. So there's this large geographical scale and this large social scale, and also a great deal of, as I've said, quite disparate data and, and primary sources. So for that reason, I wanted to develop a, a more formal model to, to deal with this material. And there's also another reason I wanted to develop this, this formal model of religious economy, and that's because, well, I, I didn't want this book to be yet another case study, yet another typical classic-style monograph about a group of Muslims in a particular place. Thirty years ago, you know, there, there were very few of such books. But, of course, over the past 30 years, through the, you know, the very fine scholarship of, of, of Francis Robinson, of, of Barbara Metcalf, of, of Paul Ernst, of so, so many other figures, and, of course, many, many Indian historians as well, we have many of these you know, particular studies, case studies of the Muslims, the particular town, the particular period. Um, and I didn't want really to sort of just to add to that pile. I wanted, in a sense, to create a, 
a kind of model, to develop a model, which would make sense of all this disparate data, because the data isn't just in my, in my book, it's from all these other books now. And, and what, what does all of this tell us about the history of Islam, the history of Muslims in South Asia, and, and more generally, the comparative level? So, I developed this idea of religious economy. I didn't invent the idea of religious economy by, by any means. The most important figure who, who, as far as I'm aware, kind of invents or, invents or really creates the notion of religious economy is the American sociologist Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is an interesting figure. He's written a, a number of books, a number of, of key article-length studies. Um, as a sociologist, of course, rather than an a, a economist, because the, the, the idea of a religious marketplace, the economy of religion, is, is a product of sociology, not of economics. So there, there needn't be anything to do with cash or money trail or, or formal um, economics in the notion of religious economy. And Rodney Stark developed the, the, the model of religious economy to explain, first of all, American religious life. Another region, another kind of semi-continental region, rather like the Indian subcontinent, that has vast diversity of religion, um, many, many different types of religious production and consumption, and actually a very lively, multifarious religious life, rather like India and different parts of India. So Stark developed the idea of religious economy to, to explain this type of, of, of as it were, multi-religious, multicultural, and highly productive religious environment, where one's always got new, um, new religious movements, new churches, new, new um, whatever else it might be. The idea, in, 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 in its simplest of, of, of the theory, in its simplest form of the economy of religion, is to, is to say that religion has a social life. Religion is created and consumed by different social groups or by different individuals. Religion then is produced on the one hand and is consumed. In order to understand the social life of religion, we need to really be able to track down and trace who the producers are, who the consumers are, and what are the relationships between these two parties. And of course, from there we can go on to, to look at different types of religious economy. Religious economies exist in, at least for the, for the sociologists, a religious economy can exist in any society. A highly urban and, and modern, postmodern, urbanized, industrialized environment, or even a, a, a simple village environment of the kind of the classic tropes of anthropology of primitive societies. But it would be a different type of religious economy. One might have a, a religious monopoly, as it were. The classic example being, the, of course, the Catholic Church in, 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 in its it's kind of strongholding in certain places in the Iberian Peninsula or parts of Latin America until relatively recently. In fact, one of the great studies in religious economy um, is, is, is a book on the religious economy of, of Latin America when the stronghold of the Catholic Church was finally broken in the latter 20th century and suddenly Latin America was opened up to televangelists from the United States. So one can have monopolistic religious economies or much more, as it were, free market or much more competitive religious economies. But what I argue happens in Bombay and what's distinct today is not that suddenly there's a religious economy. There have been religious economies in ancient, medieval, early modern India, etc., etc. But what I claim happens in Bombay is because of the sheer migration to the city of so many different, different Muslim groups, different Muslim producers as well as consumers of religion, and because when they move there, this is a period of industrial reproduction of religiosity through vernacular printing, which develops in a very big way in Bombay, in Arabic, Persian, Urdu, Gujarati, Tamil, Malay, Swahili, so many languages of the Indian Ocean region, 
motive for reproduction of religion, of reproduction of not just religious texts, but advertisements of photographs, the reproduction then of charisma, as well as of doctrine. Um, and of course also Bombay uh, is a really important centre. The metaphor I use repeatedly, that Bombay is the, is the Dubai of the 19th century for the Muslim world. You know, nowadays, Muslims of course always fly through Dubai if they're connecting on their, kind of, their world journeys. In the 19th century, in the period of the great steamship networks, it was Bombay. So Bombay was a really important centre then for mechanised transport. And this enabled not only various religious producers and consumers to visit the city, but also to move out beyond it and to spread and distribute the religious productions of the city. Hence the connections then between Bombay and the religious marketplaces that I argue evolve in South Africa at one end of the Indian Ocean and in Iran at the other end of the Indian Ocean in the 19th century. So in a sense then the forms of religious productivity from Bombay aren't limited to Bombay, but I argue spread throughout the entire Indian Ocean. The notion then of a, a religious economy enables us to, to take on this, this uh, larger spectrum, this larger geographical area with so many people in it, with so many then people mapped as producers and consumers, and to try to track down what are the relationships between these people. How is it that one type of religious product, one type of Islam, one Islam, of course I use Islam in the plural in the book, many Islams in production. How is it certain of them succeed? How, how is it some of them go global in the case of Ismailism, or what I call Neo-Ismailism, which develops um, from Bombay, I argue, in the 19th century? How is it that some only manage to establish one little kind of shop-front shrine in the city and don't go anywhere else from there? And of course, in order to, to explain how one religion or one form of religion succeeds and how another fails, that to me is really the job of the historian in particular the social historian of religion. And that, I think, is, is what's um, to me terribly important about the, the model of religious economies, because it allows us, I think, to give historicity to religion. It allows us to see that religions are born and they fail, and that they're born and they, and they fail for reasons that can be detected and explained by historians. And it takes us away, then, from the idea that religion is just, as it were, tradition. Religion, you know, religion, Islam, Christianity, Jainism, whatever, gets found at a certain point, and then there's some kind of, as it were, automatic kind of roller coaster process by which it just gets handed down through the ages automatically. Tradition. Tradition is, in a sense, is there, in, in this way, doesn't do the work for us as historians. So I wanted to actually show how, no, you know, that religion is constantly being recreated, being reshaped. It's constantly succeeding and failing. So to bring that kind of in a sense, the microscopic eye that I had for the, the, the microhistory project in the second book, to take a series of microhistory case studies, that actually take us away from this big abstraction Islam and give it real faces and places to show here was produced, this one succeeded, that one failed, and here's why. So to give real, um, real historicity to, to Islam rather than, as I say, the, the kind of the language and the model of tradition, whereas it just gets passed on. The very reasons why it gets passed on, and I think that's what the model of religious economy helps us to explain, at least on this kind of this larger scale canvas that I was dealing with. Yeah, you've done that very well in the case of the Ismailis and Bombay. You know how the Ismailis actually went Bombay up base and how they benefited both from you know its networks, its interline, then well as well as the maritime network. That's right. I mean, the, the, it's certainly Ismailism and the the the. the the two uh, Arkhan's father and son, Arkhan one and two, the main figures 
in the stories I deal, deal with it, were among the most successful, as I call them, religious entrepreneurs in the city. And when I talk about religious entrepreneurs, I mean, this isn't a term that I use in any pejorative sense at all, whether with regard to the Archons or with other figures. I mean, in a sense, one could call someone like Jesus a religious entrepreneur. It's someone who is able actually to, to have sufficient charisma in Weberian terms or, or actually kind of sufficient wherewithal to actually institutionally and quite practically spread their message around. So, so this isn't a term, um, you know, I see the, the term of religious entrepreneur as being really kind of a neutral social science descriptor. And, of course, social science language needs to, needs to do work for us, needs to do analytical and then kind of explicatory work for us to explain who certain figures are. So figures such as the Archons or the many other religious entrepreneurs I look at, in many ways, in a sense, the, the, the heroes of the story, insofar as these are the, the, you know, the, the figures that, that succeed in, in spreading their Islams. In the case of the Archons, it's a really uh, tremendously successful um, mode of entrepreneurship, insofar as the, the move to Bombay itself was really very crucial. And, of course, I situate the Archon I as among one of the whole series of Iranian migrants and Iranian religious entrepreneurs who moved from Iran to Bombay. And that's a really crucial and quite brilliant uh, decision to do that, particularly actually in the relatively early period in which he does that, in the mid-19th century, quite uh, much earlier than many of his compatriots. And then by the time of Al-Khan III in the early 1900s, shifting out of Bombay, Bombay's kind of lost its global moment, or its great moment, moving on to, to uh, London and Switzerland. So there's, um, you know, kind of really a great deal of, in a sense, uh, I suppose in a way, business sense, really, because, of course, to, to manage any global religion or to manage any expanding religion is a feat of, of not merely of charisma, but of, of, of managerial skills as well, really. Um, and this isn't to, to dissolve religion or to reduce religion. It's, it's merely to explain it. And I think to go back to the model of religious economy, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to make any claims um, that religious economy answers all questions. Religious economy cannot answer questions um, which are the dealings of theology. It can't deal with questions of, of what's theologically truthful or not. It sets that aside. It, it doesn't deal with, with these questions, nor can it claim to. Nor does it deal with, with questions of phenomenology, how religion feels, how does it make the believer feel, the kind of the personal, private, spiritual, or phenomenological aspects of religion. Religious economy can't deal with that either. But it does deal with, I think it's very good at dealing with social life and the practical social life of religion, of entrepreneurship, of managing, of distribution, um, whether through, through movement through, through time or actually movement through space, through distribution through ships and trains I look at, or even movement through time, through patterns of reproduction, through, through family reproduction, or the creation of texts and canons that will be handed on and, and printed and reproduced in that way through, through time. So that's what religious economy does, deals with in the social, historical life of religion. But, but certainly there's nothing I'm intending to do in the book which is intending to explain away the truth claims of religion. That's, what, you know, that's the job of theology and the job of, um, the job of phenomenology. And you know, it, it's not the job of the historian or the sociologist to, to um, you know, we don't have the tools to attack or even the right to attack these kind of truth claims. Uh, what about intersecting religious economies? You know, here, like the religious economy in question, you're talking about the plurality of Islam in Bombay. But as you yourself said, there were other religions, and they all have their own subsects, and you know, like developments ongoing. So, what about when these interacted with the many Islams of Bombay? 
Sorry, Doug, could you repeat the question? Or, or oh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I just wanted to know about like intersecting religious economies. So, for example, the religious economy in the book that you're talking about, that's mostly about the many Islams of Bombay. But, you know, as you pointed out yourself, like you had a similar situation for maybe Hinduism, for Christianity, or for Catholicism and the other creeds. And so what about, like, you know, when like, different texts from two faiths intersected, what about the outcome of that? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a very good question. I mean, certainly, the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the book is about, very clearly, just about, or mainly about, really, um, about the, the Muslims of Bombay and their religious economy. And I want to do that because, really, the story of Bombay's Muslims hasn't been told. The story of Bombay's Maharashtrians and Parsis and even Goans and various other figures, and of course Dalits, and they're all very important communities. That, that's all been told. So that's why I focused on Bombay Muslims, because there's never really been, apart from the work of, 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 of Jim Maselos, really no work really on, on Bombay's Muslims, despite the fact that they were a tremendously important uh, community. And, uh, and not least important, as I say, because um, I believe them to be in the first... Muslim proletariat, the first Muslim industrial working class to develop in world history, and that's really a major, a major development, a major point of study. So that's why I focused on, on Bombay's Muslims. But certainly, the book could have been um, written as a, as it were, a, a more kind of, in a sense, a research thin uh, or a more kind of spread out book on on Bombay's religious economy altogether, taking on board the many figures in this cosmopolitan city, the many religious groups. So I do talk about, for example, I talk about how the, the Parsis create a religious economy in Bombay that they similarly export to Iran as well. The Parsi Zoroastrianism, I mean, Zoroastrianism in, in nine, latter 19th and 20th century Iran is in many ways a, a creation of, of Bombay Parsis, intellectually, institutionally, and financially. Um, and the same story could be told in many ways about Bombay Jewry as well, the Jews of Bombay, particularly their relation to, to, to their other key port in, in, in Basra and to Baghdad. So other oceanic type of stories could be told there with regard to, to Parsis as well as to, to, to Jews. And of course with Bombay's Hindus as well, there are many, many different stories that could be told there too. I allude to some of them in the book, but, but Bombay is a great place of religious entrepreneurship as well for different Hindu groups. Of course when, when these questions come up, and when I've answered these kind of questions before with regard to the book about whether, whether there could be, say, a Hindu religious economy in some way that mirrored the, the Muslim religious economy, and it's been pointed out to me that, well, no, it couldn't be the same because, for example, of, of caste rules or caste restrictions and so on and so forth that, that you know, would make a Hindu religious marketplace very different to a Muslim religious marketplace. But I really don't think that is necessarily the case. All, all economies, all marketplaces, whether religious or otherwise, are subject, of course, to cultural restraints. That's the same whether one's selling, um, I don't know, kind of Coca-Cola or... or you know, bacon sandwiches in one place or another, or, or whether one's kind of marketing a certain type of religiosity. The entrepreneurs will always adapt themselves to the cultural conditions of their marketplace, whether that is, as I say, kind of a financial entrepreneur or a religious entrepreneur. So I don't think that the actual case of, of, of Hinduism, of course it would be different, the market would have its, its somewhat different cultural profile, but I think in many ways, um, many of the kind of the key issues of a, a very productive, an industrialized, print-based, and, and, and rail and steamship distribution-based economy coming out of Bombay would really um, actually kind of stand, stand the test as well. And I do, of course, in the book allude to a few um, very important Hindu groups, particularly Hindu reform groups that come out of the city. So, so 
you know, perhaps if I had the patience, which I don't, you know, I, you know, I, I might go on to write, and it might be perhaps a, a, a more book of wider interest to write the book of, of Bombay's religious economy all told. But what I really wanted to do in the book, more than anything else, I think, is, is really to, to lay out um, um, a case study of the application of a certain model as clearly as possibly, and then to say, well, to other readers, think about this yourselves. You know, think about how this applies to the people you're working on, whether Hindus in Bombay or whoever else it might be, I don't know, kind of Sikhs in Montreal or in Vancouver or whatever else it might be. So to try to kind of lay out a model that is clear enough and hopefully convincing enough to be applied elsewhere. Yeah, and uh, one more question. In the book, you have chosen to highlight, you know, the link of Bombay Muslims with Iran, with South Africa, but you also mentioned uh, the, the links with the Indo-Malay world. So, like, uh, could you tell us something more about those? That's right. I mean, what's very interesting about uh, about Bombay is is it, its really important role as a printing center. Of course, in certain ways, um, for, for Indo-Islamic texts, Lucknow was more important, probably in terms of the, the sheer number of production of Persian and Urdu books. But Bombay was, was, was more important as an oceanic marketplace. It was producing books in Persian to export to Iran when Iran itself had very few printing presses, certainly had no steam presses, and actually had a government censorship system in Iran. So many books, including the key foundational works of Baha'ism, were actually printed in Iran for the Persian marketplace. So this global, sorry, this global and oceanic marketplace was rather different to, say, the marketplaces of places like Lucknow or Kanpur inland, which were more Indian and to a certain extent continental, reaching, you know, perhaps to Kabul and the other other place. And it's in this respect then that, that Southeast Asia most vividly comes into contact with Bombay because many Malay books, and actually many Tamil books, um, for um, Tamils in in what's then Malaya and Singapore are printed in Bombay for distribution there. And what's interesting is the kind of texts that are, are produced in these languages are very much in the line of what I've, I've described in the book as Bombay's economy of enchantment. These are printed books, but these are not what the, the existing scholarship on, on printing and Islam would expect us to believe. These aren't Quranic portions. This isn't a Protestant Islam that comes about through printing. These were an, an extension of Elizabeth Eisenstein's famous argument with regard to the connection between printing and the Protestant Reformation in Europe. On the contrary, these are books largely that are um, texts of, of hagiography, stories of saints and of miracles, in certain cases as well, poems as well, poems relating to the saints or, or poems related to, to ancestral stories. So these, in many cases, these aren't modernist or, or scriptural Protestant types of texts at all. Um, and Southeast Asia is, is interesting as well in, in relation to Bombay, insofar as I think the East Indian Ocean, um, my book's largely about what I call the West Indian Ocean. The East Indian Ocean then, um, perhaps connecting uh, Tamil Nadu, Calcutta, of course Burma, and all, all the way down through, through Malaya to Singapore, I think in many ways kind of creates a parallel to what we see in the West Indian Ocean. Bombay's impact isn't, there isn't as big, as it is in the East, East as, as it is in the, in the sort of Western generation connected to Africa and the Middle East, by no means. But it's still felt there. But once these parallels going on there, so when I I, I travelled through through Malaysia and then through Singapore, I I, I, I did a um, an itinerary that took me to a whole series of shrines founded by or founded for the indentured Tamil labourers that, that moved to to Malaysia in the 19th century. 
they were really absolute oceanic counterparts to what I'd seen in, in South Africa. Really, and that whole process of it's um, the movement of industrial labor, or, in, or at least of agro-industrial labor, agricultural industrial labor, the movement of this kind of industrial global capitalist process, but what does it create? It actually creates the reproduction of custom, the creation of new miraculous shrines to the saints. And that struck me as being, you know, kind of quite a, a significant um, um, discovery or, or process within subaltern or, or working class history. That, again, you know, as I've mentioned before, that these shrines seem to be the the places where one can recover the history of um, these indentured labors through through the texts that are preserved there. And that was as noticeable as much as it, um, in, in, in Malaysia as it was in, in, in South Africa. Okay, so moving on from uh, all these micro studies to something rather maybe more tried, maybe more populist, to be honest. Uh, well, Muhammad Ali Jinnah was a Bombay boy, so... What do you think was the result of the interaction, you know, with all these plural Islams? I mean, he actually sought to maybe unite all the Islams in India into maybe one very political nation-state kind of Islam. What influence do you think Bombay had on him? Yeah, that, that's a nice question. Well, Bombay or indeed Karachi. I mean, some years ago I visited Jinnah's house in Karachi, and it really strikes me that, you know, that there's really something very significant there, that this connection between these, these four cities in this period. Um, and to... Uh, digress slightly. I mean, the port cities, whether Bombay or Karachi, or cities like Aden or Alexandria and Beirut, and um, and indeed London and, and Liverpool. I mean, one of my other big projects at the moment is is looking at the ways in which Indian Muslims and Iranian and Afghan Muslims interacted at a global level with these port cities in the 19th century. Um, so, of course, there are a whole series of travelogues of of figures, whether and of course the the founder of the, kind of the intellectual ancestor. Of Jinnah, that's to say, uh, to say Ahmad Khan, he's the first figure in any major way to leave um, a travel account of his journey to through these port cities, through Bombay to Aden, and of course, all the way to London. So I think there really is something tremendously formatively important that, that Muslim history in the 19th century is, is shifting in a way from the, the, in the South Asian context, in the larger South Asian context, taking in Afghanistan as well, is shifting away from that kind of inland continental geography, the kind of the, the kind of geography of the Mughal Empire and its kind of sultanate predecessors, very land-based empire, through to these port cities. Now that's kind of an old point, but I'm interested in actually trying to trace the, the first-person narrative of these travelogues to see well what exactly was this impact of these cities, and, and that's the kind of work as a historian I like to do. You know, I really like to kind of uh, trace down really, you know, first-person evidence before, you know, entirely speculating on something. I haven't, I haven't actually done that with Jinnah, and in many ways, kind of Jinnah, I've always, you know, preferred to work on more obscure figures than, than the well-known figures. But I think I think Jinnah might well fit it, into that model and so far as, of course, Jinnah is someone, that, in the book I argue that there were kind of two types of impact that the, the cosmopolitan, the pluralistically Muslim environment of Bombay has on different Muslims that come there. And I trace that in looking at the different travelogues and different responses to Bombay. One of those responses is to celebrate pluralism, in a sense, kind of a, a kind of a, a, a positive cosmopolitanism. And the other response that you know I, I trace through different different writings of different Muslim travelers to Bombay is to actually kind of denigrate it. To actually either denigrate it by saying, well all of those other people are wrong or they're scoundrels or they're 
they're kind of hypocrites and liars and, and, and kafirs and don't follow the right path, whether other Muslims are followers of other religions, or whether it's just to say, no, only my way of, my production of Islam, my version of Islam is the correct one. So there are these kind of two early responses, positive cosmopolitanism and negative cosmopolitanism that come out of this pluralistic environment. And I think Juno you know, clearly is one of these figures that, that comes out on, on the positive side. Positive, I don't mean as a value judgment, I don't mean good or bad in terms of someone who wants to embrace that pluralism and do something with it. Uh, and of course, Jinnah's own, own uh, background as, 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 as a sort of a member of a Muslim minority group as well himself, of course. That, I think, fits in with that larger trajectory as well of trying to, um, trying to connect him with, with a larger, larger group of Muslims and try to actually find, is there one Islam that holds people together? Of course, for Jinnah and for other figures, it, it's... Uh, not the religion as such, it's the religion as nation or, or as community that does that. And I think in, in doing that, he, he's on one hand responding very much to, to Bombay and the lesser form Karachi, of course, Karachi being a city within the Bombay presidency anyway. And of course, um, Karachi, it's not like this, but of course, Bombay is, I guess, kind of younger younger twin or, or younger sibling, smaller sibling. Um, so on the one hand, Jinnah, I think, is, is reacting to that environment in which he grows up. But of course, he's also reacting to something much bigger than that, if nonetheless connected to, the, to, to that, to those cities, which is, of course, the, the, the global experience in which he's had. The fact that he's been able to travel to other places, the fact that, that, um, that, that these cities are actually places where he's not only exposed to Muslims, he's exposed to all kinds of people. So I think that, yeah, Jinnah is certainly a figure who, who would, would, one would see as, as a product of, of on the one hand, of, of Bombay's kind of cosmopolitan environment, but also of Bombay and other poor cities as these kind of globalized cities. But having said that, I mean, at least within, within to stay true to the argument of the book, the reason I finished the book uh, in, in 1915 is, is because this is the year when, when Jinnah becomes um, the president of, of the Muslim League. And I see uh, the Muslim League, even though it's not really that big in Bombay, it's not significant in Bombay as, as, it, as it is in North India, but nonetheless, I see the, the emergence of, of, of Muslim nationalism, as, mark, as, as well as actually the emergence of, of pan-Islamism, uh, of the Khilafat movement, which, again, largely North Indian, but has a number of, of key players in Bombay. And, of course, all of its practical interactions with the Ottoman world are, 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 happen through Bombay, through sailing through Bombay. So I see the, the development of pan-Islamism through the Khilafat movement in India and, and of Muslim nationalism through, through Jinnah, as marking a different period in, in Indo-Muslim history, and a period in which not Bombay Islam, this kind of enchanted economy, this economy of enchantment I talk about, that doesn't come to an end. The shrine's still alive and well there, of course. But I think it ceases to be the dominant player that it had been for this, this kind of 70-odd year moment that I talk about in the book. So dinner and the history of Muslim nationalism moves in a kind of a different trajectory, and Within the, the framework of religious economy, of course, what happens there is that the political party, the notion of the political party, becomes a space and a site of religious productivity, as does, of course, the journalist and journalism and parties founded by journalists as well. I mean, one, one thinks of um, <coughs> the Jamiat Islami in the early history of, of, of Maududi, its founders of journalists in this context as well, of course, another hydrogradic figure. So I think what's happening then. In, that, in, in this period from around 1915, is that new types of new religious firms within the vocabulary of the religious economy, new religious firms, um, such as the newspaper, uh, 
the Jama'at and the political parties start to become really important producers of religion. And that's a different story that isn't the one I'm telling in Bombay Islam. Um, so, Nile, that was very interesting. Uh, you mentioned your future research sometime back. Could you tell us something more about it? Yeah, well, I'm working on, on a few different things. Well, I have um, two books forthcoming, which might be of interest. One book is um, Sufism, A Global History, which is due out with Blackwell Wiley, I think, in February. And this is the, it's a survey work, but it's the, the first truly global and uh, uh, historical survey of the development and the spread of Sufism, or Sufi Islam, as I prefer to call it, from its early heartlands in uh, Baghdad and Iraq. And it's spread through Central Asia, South Asia, Africa, Southeast Asia, and ultimately to Europe and the United States, and even China um, in the early modern modern period. So that's one book that I have coming out, and that's been an enjoyable write and hopefully a useful read, because it is, as I say, the, the, the first attempt to, to look at the, the whole long durée of um, Sufi Islamic history as a kind of ongoing process. Um, so, as it were, there's a kind of there's an innate narrative in there of seeing how how Sufism develops and spreads, and ultimately through the 20th century, actually by the end of the colonial period, becomes a victim of its own success, um, as so many uh, Sufis have become um, close to colonial rulers and close to, um, to non-colonial elites as well. So that's one book that's coming out and then completed. I have another uh, Indian history book, at least that's on the way out, with uh, Moxford University Press from, from Delhi, and that's called Making Space, Sufis and Settlers in Early Modern India. And in that book, um, I, I look, uh, developed the idea of, of the importance of these shrines, the shrines, the burial places of the saints, of course, of which there are literally thousands across India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Um, and I developed the idea of these um, shrines as being what I call, what I borrow the term, lieu de mémoire, which I borrowed from the French historian Pierre Nora. And I mean this as, as lieu de mémoire, places of memory, in both um, a processual sense and a methodological sense. Processually, because it's actually at these shrines that are founded for migrants, in some cases ancestor figures of different Muslim communities, of Afghans, of Turanis, Central Asians, of Iranians, as well as North Indians, who are in the kind of the very mobile imperial world of early modern India, who are settling in different bits of the subcontinent, and around these shrines where, where these figures are buried, these become quite literally the, the, the built um, concrete stone repositories of memory, places where oral tradition are maintained, not only about the saints, but about the whole community that developed or traveled and settled around him in that location. And also, of course, of written works as well, hagiographies that contain not just the stories of the saints, but a, a saint is a social product. The saint doesn't exist alone. He exists amid a community, amid a clientele, amid a society. So it preserves the memory of these figures who were the followers of the saint and the followers of his descendants. And of course, through ritualized um, corporeal bodily memory as well, ritual body enactments of memory as well, these shrines preserve memory through the generations. So I look at that with regard to a whole series of, of different um, Muslim settler communities and migrant saints, both in North India and particularly in the Deccan, over a period of a couple of centuries. And I actually trace that right back in the last chapter, right up to the present day, when I look at, uh, I visited some of these shrines and took down the oral traditions as well, to try to trace how, how the actual memory of the Mughal period and the periods of Muslim settlement and the foundation of 
Muslim communities in different cities, um, it, it actually happens through the creation of these shrines, as it were, these places that will, do, will continue to survive when everything else of the period has been knocked down and bulldozed and replaced by whatever it might be, bazaars or multi-story blocks or whatever else it is. But of course, these are places of memory, as I said, also in a, in a, in a methodological sense too, because as a historian, I often find that it's these, um, these shrines that really preserve not only documentation, but also oral traditions and ceremonial practices as well. And it's actually quite interesting when one thinks about it, because when one looks at, um, at the South Asia as a whole, shrines are more or less unique in terms of, of, of buildings that survive with often their family lineages of owners intact across the centuries, often in terms of their some of their furniture or their relics or material culture, their documentation, and their ceremonies intact. One could say that perhaps for the occasional palace in Rajasthan, but by and large, that's a pretty unique feat for in terms of early modern or even medieval physical spaces that survive or survive through the disruptions of Indian history through the colonial period and even beforehand. So that's um, two of the books that are coming out then, so um, The Sufism of Global History and, and Making Space. And I'm working on um, a couple of other projects. One is um, relates to Afghanistan. It's a co-edited volume entitled Afghanistan in Ink, Afghan Literatures Between diaspora and nation, and that's um, an attempt to understand the place of literature within the nation-making process of, of building an Afghan nation-state in the late 19th and the course of the 20th century, and how the transnational flows of, of, of literature, the transnational flows of ideology, in fact, in the guise of literature, whether Islamist ideology, communist ideology, market-orientated, liberal ideology in the guise of literature, have actually... Uh, paradoxically destabilized the very project of nation building that they were they're meant to be helping. So that's a book which will be coming out uh, next year then, Afghanistan and Inc., and I'm currently um, editing that. And in terms of uh, monographs, my two main projects at the moment then, one relates to these Muslim travelers in the 19th century that I've talked about, and um, I'm looking at a, a whole series of uh, travelogues in Urdu and Persian, travelogues of travels from Afghanistan to Europe and Afghanistan to India, or from India to Afghanistan or to Europe, or from India to Africa, um, or from Iran to Europe, or from Iran to the Mediterranean. So this whole sort of sense in which in the 19th century, through the globalization of uh, transport infrastructure, uh, Muslims from these regions were able to really discover this whole world, and in really kind of often surprising ways. And I'm really interested in the kind of making some sense of the of, of kind of details, like what does it mean when Haji Pirzadeh, one of the Iranian figures I look at, a, a kind of a, a, a traveler from the provinces of Iran, when he turns up in 1887 in Madame Tussauds in London and can actually examine very close up Nasiruddin Shah, the Shah of Iran, he can actually look at his waxwork close up. What does that mean? You know, What kind of effect does that have in a society in which, in Iran itself, he couldn't have come within a thousand yards of the Shah, and yet he can go to London and you know, close up with Madame Tussauds inspect the king's face. So it's these types of, of anecdotal, you know, very personalized experiences that I'm trying to make sense of those, what is the larger effect of those. And the book doesn't have a title yet, but it's a, it's a study of these, uh, the, these travelogues. And the other project I'm working on then, finally, sorry, it's, I know it's like filling up a, a virtual bookshelf for you here, um, is um, a study of, of one, one Iranian traveler who is a more or less the, the, the first significant um, 
modern Iranian figure to reach uh, Europe, and particularly Britain, is a figure called Mirza Salih Shirazi, who spends four years in, in, in uh, England as a student between 1815 and 1819. And in those years, he's absolutely, um, quite literally, at the heart of Jane Austen's Britain. He travels to Bath, he actually reads the literature, the romantic literature of the day, he, he meets many people at Oxford and Cambridge, he meets high society, he goes to balls, he goes to the opera house, um, and he also apprentices himself to a printer on Fleet Street and takes back the, well, what happens to be the second printing press in Iran and founds the first newspaper in Iranian history. He was a tremendously important figure, um, but he also kind of, he leaves a very detailed Persian travel account in which he details all of his meetings with all manners of people in Jane Austen's Britain. So I'm picturing that as being um, perhaps, well, you know, hopefully it'll still be a kind of erudite book, but hopefully a, a sort of fun and enjoyable uh, tale of, of, of what this uh, what this student got up to in those years in Britain. Wow, that was exhaustive. I think uh, we should have to get back to your research now, because I'm sure our listeners are going to love hearing you talk about the rest of your books as well. So thanks for now, but do keep us posted about you know your books as and when they come out. Absolutely, yeah, that would be a pleasure. And then thanks for the interview. It's really uh, been enjoyable and really a, a piece of self-indulgence to talk to an hour, talk for an hour about my work. So uh, for anyone who's born with me this far, thank you all for your patience and for listening. Okay. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. So, walk a delightful stroll through the crowded streets of the sports city. As the neighborhoods of old Bombay stare at redevelopment, much of it sponsored by the Aga Khan, it might be worthwhile to ponder on the global network that emerged from their cramped and to the outsider chaotic structures. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.